Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. In this episode, Law Talk is hosting the Lawyering for Social Justice series. The Lawyering for Social Justice series is an opportunity to hear from human rights and social justice practitioners to learn about their work and diverse career paths in the field. This event features Minnesota law alumna Heather Abraham, who has held two federal clerkships, an Equal Justice Works Fellowship, completed a clinical teaching fellowship at Georgetown Law, and recently joined the law faculty at SUNY Buffalo, directing the Civil Rights and Transparency Clinic. Public interest and lecturer-in-law Anne Sexton sits down with Professor Abraham to discuss her public interest career. Subscribe to Minnesota Law Podcast Feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Anne Sexton, the Assistant Director of Public Interest here at the Law School. And this is our first ever virtual Lawyering for Social Justice event. And we couldn't have a better guest to join us today than Professor Heather Abraham. Professor Abraham completed her JD here at the University of Minnesota Law School and received a joint degree in public policy at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. While in law school, she worked as a research assistant to Professor Myron Orfield, which ignited her passion for civil rights and fair housing. After graduation, Professor Abraham clerked in federal district court in Western Michigan, then again with the US Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. From there, she was awarded a prestigious Equal Justice Works Fellowship. Her project focused on housing justice and interrupting the cycle of homelessness. Professor Abraham then completed a top-ranked clinical teaching fellowship program at Georgetown Law, where she was the supervising attorney in the Civil Rights Clinic. Just recently, she joined the law faculty at the State University of New York at Buffalo commonly referred to as SUNY Buffalo, directing the Civil Rights and Transparency Clinic. Wow, if that wasn't an impressive enough career path already, on a personal note, I'll add that I was fortunate to attend law school with Heather, and I can tell you her commitment to public interest is long-standing, and she has long held a reputation for being a genuine and committed individual. Heather, thank you for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you. It is an absolute pleasure, Anne. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's go ahead and dig in. And we'll start with some simple questions to get us going today. Can you tell us why you decided to go to law school? So this is sort of an embarrassing one, actually. Uh, It's not the sort of answer that you want to give during a job interview, be forewarned. Um, I think that going to law school was one of, frankly, the most unexamined decisions of my life, relatively speaking. Um, Maybe students can relate to that. I was on, I think, a path. I checked all the pre-law boxes, right? I was a high school debate student. I was a poli-sci major. People told me, you should be a lawyer. Uh, I worked on Capitol Hill with a lot of lawyers after I graduated from college. And so naturally it was, uh, I was supposed to go to law school, right? So looking back at my decision-making, it 
it really was not a paragon of self-awareness. And frankly, I feel lucky that I had other things going for me and people crossed my path during law school in particular um, that really helped me find my way nonetheless. So I will talk about this later, but for now I will say that a lot of lawyers are really unhappy with their work. And I think one statistic that I heard is even 10% of lawyers don't, are, are the only 10% of lawyers actually like what they do. Um, but I think there's a lot that we can do to avoid that and to find happiness within the law. So this is a lesson I've learned. And I think that is why uh, I talked to so many prospective and current law students about their careers, because I want to help them find clarity and match who they really are with what they can do as lawyers. So again, thank you for having me. And <laughs> I hope other people can relate to that decision about going to law school. Well, I certainly can relate to it being a less than fully formed uh, thought process myself. Um, so I'll say even for our students that maybe came to law school with a clear vision, sometimes that vision changes. Um, and I think they'll also be able to relate to your story. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, we won't hold it against you that you didn't, uh, didn't fully examine your decision to come to law school. And despite not fully examining your decision to come to law school, you held two prestigious federal clerkships. Would you recommend a clerkship really at any level for students pursuing a public interest career? I know we're on a podcast, but I am smiling with, with <laughs> I can completely relate to that. And I do think that um, a lot of times it's very common in law school for individuals to think they want to do one thing and find out that it's not a great fit and then feel very, um, I think thrown off, right? It's just, it's um, unnerving. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I do think that clerkships are a great example, frankly, at all levels of the judiciary and in administrative tribunals to get exposure. I think that's the number one value that I see in a clerkship. They are opportunities for growth because you observe lawyers being lawyers. You watch them argue, you read their briefs. If you're lucky, you have a judge or co-clerks who mentor you, who break things down and tell you why they do or don't think something's well-reasoned. And with time, you develop a stronger sense of good lawyering and not so good lawyering. And that's what I really think a clerkship is about. Now, a lot of people chase clerkships for the prestige, and it's true that they can open doors by having them on your resume. But um, in my case, I chose a federal district court clerkship specifically because I had a strong feeling that I wanted to litigate fair housing cases at the trial level. But I really believe that a fast moving trial court of general jurisdiction, especially state courts, is one of the best places to be exposed to the most variety and the most lawyering. So I do believe that most employers will see that experience on a resume and it will just as a practical matter inevitably prepare um, students, recent graduates to be better prepared for practice. So I would say this, if you are thinking about clerking, um, the number one tip I would have is to invest the time. And what I mean by that, I think can be summed up in a couple of, of pretty simple examples. Those are things like spend time on the front end, 
targeting your search. Maybe that's geographically for you or the type of court rather than going too broad. Uh, customize your cover letters to specific judges if you know that those are the judges you want to work for. And then do the hard work of actually reaching out to people who maybe know those judges, like former clerks. Even a cold call or contact through LinkedIn can be useful. It's informative to you if you ask that person about um, his or her or their experience, and it helps you get your name recognized so that um, you get noticed because so much of the competition is just getting noticed in the pile of applications. But yes, I my clerkships were very informative and they were great for exposure to lawyering. As our judicial clerkship advisor in our office likes to say, and we all believe, there is a clerkship for everyone. Those are some great judicial clerkship tips for students to pay attention to. It sounds like your fellowship experience though with EJW was one of your particularly formative experiences. Would you tell us about that fellowship, what you did and why? So, the one thing that I knew when I started law school, and we've already talked about how it wasn't the most examined decision, was that I was going to practice public interest. I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know how to do it. I just knew that a fellowship was one way to get my foot in the door. And there's much more to say about how I explored that during law school, but I will say this, I saw it on the horizon for me. And so I had my eye out while I was in school and while I was clerking, as I started to get a sense of what I wanted to do, I looked for the right partner organization. And I really think it's not too early for students to start on that search because which host organization you choose and chooses you is a big part. It's, it's part of the equation that I think really speaks to your potential funders. So a common mistake that a lot of students and recent graduates make is waiting too soon to develop these relationships, especially if they want to apply with an organization they've never worked for or interned with. So during my clerkships, I would do informational interviews. I would sometimes go out to lunch or take lunch breaks on the telephone, sometimes evenings and weekends if, if nonprofit attorneys were willing to talk to me then. And I'd ask them a lot of questions like, what problems are you trying to solve at your organization? What would you do with more lawyers on staff? And slowly I worked with one legal services office in Michigan to design a project. And what's nice is it was really informed by their ideas, not by mine. So. My specific project focused on interrupting the cycle of homelessness, as you mentioned. It involved eviction defense and housing court. It involved strengthening an existing but very underutilized eviction diversion program, which is a, a more and more common um, program across the United States to help people avoid eviction in the first place, especially before it goes to court. I think there are, are maddening statistics about how the average American family doesn't even have $1,000 in savings. And so um, if you start to look at those statistics, you realize how easy it is with one bump in the road, like a car breaking down, to not be able to pay next month's rent. And the most difficult but rewarding part of my project was setting up a new problem-solving diversion court that we called Community Outreach Court. It was started in the Michigan courts. And um, it had to do with trying to interrupt um, someone who had a history of homelessness or housing insecurity, helping to interrupt their debtor's cycle if they owed fees and fines to the court. That sounds like a really interesting project, Heather. When you were building your EJW project proposal, did you ever have a moment of imposter syndrome? I'm putting you on the spot here, Heather, with this question. Um, but I know sometimes our students 
get a little nervous when they're putting together these large post-grad fellowships where they're the leader. They're going to be the uh, implementer, the designer, the person carrying this out. Um, and that can feel a little intimidating. Did you have any moments of Am I qualified to do this? Can I carry this out? Can I deliver? Or did you go in very confident? And if you did, could you share some secrets with us? I really appreciate that question. What makes me laugh most, Anne, is that you are speaking in the past tense as if imposter syndrome doesn't follow us in different ways throughout our career. <laughs> in some ways, I've had to reinvent myself several times, first to, to be the best clerk possible, and then to be the best legal services attorney possible, and then to, to shift to teaching, to be the best teacher uh, in one respect and litigator in another respect uh, and to find that balance. And so that imposter, that sense of doing something new and not being as qualified as you could be to do it, it always follows us. Um, but fun fact about me, one of my passions in life is to get women elected to office. And so one of the things I think about a lot is talking to people about how the life experience they've had informs and really serves them in other contexts. And we'll talk later about transferable skills and, and, and using those to build toward the dream job that, that a public interest attorney is looking for. But I will say that we, we have to, at a certain point, stop trying to always build up our credentials and just assume that um, another you know, training program, another degree behind our name is what is going to make us qualified. And so while some confidence comes from that, I'd really appreciate, I'd really encourage listeners to think, what have I already done? And maybe I haven't done that exact thing, but I have had a situation where I encountered something new and I prevailed or I got past the challenges and I was nervous at first, but I continued to do well once I got my head wrapped around the challenge. And so I think you just start somewhere and you keep going. I really appreciate that answer, Heather. I've, I've long thought that law school, one of the main things it teaches us is it teaches us how to teach ourselves things that we don't know, right? And having a little trust that you can teach yourself a new area of law, a new motion, a new procedural aspect of a case, whatever the challenge in front of you might be, but that you have the tools to teach yourself how to rise to that challenge. I also wanted to go back uh, for a minute because as a career counselor, I was smiling when you were talking about building relationships and all the networking you were doing when you were building out your EJW fellowship uh, project. And so I wanna just couch this and, and, and I wanna hear if you agree in terms larger than just the benefit of if you happen to be working on a post-grad fellowship. But I'm a big believer that anytime you're talking with attorneys about jobs, their job, and you think their job might be interesting, that is valuable intel. Even just getting a, can you tell me what your day-to-day -day looks like? What's your favorite part of your job? What's the most challenging part of your job? Why do you stay? I think those type of networking conversations, although they don't necessarily lead to a job themselves, can be so informative when we're talking about exploring all the different practice areas, 
especially within public interest. And when we're talking in the context of intentionality and the career development process, because you it's hard in law school in three years to try every single practice area there is. Um, and so being very intentional about the relationships you build and how you're seeking out that information, I think can have a, a larger impact um, on your professional development uh, certainly helpful for postgrad fellowship development, but in other arenas as well. Do you do you have any additional thoughts you'd want to comment on that? Absolutely, and I'm I'm glad you asked. I think that intentionality and seeking out information is something that we could all just do a lot better and earlier. Career planning is hard. It takes dedicated time and a lot of thought over time because we're dynamic people and we change. One day something seems like a good idea, the next day we don't feel so sure. And so I think that we're, we should constantly ask ourselves these questions and, and just keep checking in year after year. Is this something I wanna do? Am I getting value out of this? Am I adding value to the world? And so, yeah, I think that those are great questions to ask. And I think one point that I would really encourage people to have on the forefront of their mind is you have to start somewhere. And it's unlikely that you'll land your dream job immediately after graduation. And so you're looking for a job that gives you transferable skills. And one way you learn what skills you need is you talk to these experienced lawyers. You look for people maybe who are really happy doing what they do, who show up day after day and just seem energized to fight the good fight that they've chosen. And you um, maybe look for people who are at organizations that do what you care about the most that you, you can't stop thinking about. And you figure out what are the primary skills that they are using in the field? Literally ask them, is it negotiation? Is it effective brief writing? Is it building coalitions with non-lawyers or artists? Is it drafting laws? What is it that they do? I think that's a great question, Anne, and I, I fully agree. I have certainly take advantage, taken advantage of the phrase informational interview many times when I've reached out to people and I have not been, I have not been disappointed. People have been willing to talk. Oh, that's really great to hear, Heather. We're always telling students that attorneys enjoy talking with them and are very open to it. So I'm glad that's been your experience as well. Um, I'm gonna move further along in your impressive career here. So after your fellowship, you moved into the legal clinical teaching sphere. Can you tell us how you ended up at Georgetown Law? I think that it's a really timely segue um, based on what we were just talking about. I basically had two mentors enter my life. They didn't come in saying, I think I'm going to influence you to become a clinical teacher. It just sort of happened. One of them is the inimitable Kathy Smolensky, who is a professor at Wayne State Law in Detroit. She had a career as a counselor before becoming an attorney, and now she directs a one-of-a-kind medical legal partnership at Wayne State called the Legal Advocacy for People with Cancer Clinic. And she originally started it as an Equal Justice Works Fellow. So I met her when I was talking about fellowships, when I was living in Detroit after graduation and about to start my clerkship. And she, over many conversations, um, just we really, I think, clicked. She helped me to understand her role as a clinical professor. And 
full circle years later, she and I did a presentation in October to current Equal Justice Works fellows about the role, what it means. Um, so she was one. And the other person was another amazing woman, Nina Tarr, who was a longtime clinical educator at the University of Illinois Law. And she and I crossed paths toward the beginning of my Equal Justice Works Fellowship as well. And by the end, she had me convinced that I should at least try teaching. And I learned that a clinical teaching fellowship is one exploratory path that prepares you for the academic job market. And don't hesitate to reach out to me to talk about it because it really is its own unique career. For students that are really enjoying their clinic work during law school and think maybe I could be a clinic instructor as well or a clinic fellow as well. What advice do you have for them while they're still in law school? Mm, that's a great question. So when I was in law school, believe it or not, I didn't actually take a clinic. I thought about taking a housing clinic and then um, it just so happened that somebody I knew had worked at the what was then Minneapolis Legal Aid Society, so Minnesota Legal Services, and I went straight there and worked in the housing division with a, a landlord tenant attorney and worked sort of at the nexus of domestic violence and housing and was able to work with my first client who had a housing choice voucher. So section eight voucher on the private market, but needed to move because of abuse and the fact that she was being targeted at that location. So that was my first real role negotiating um, with in fact, a, a public housing authority representative to port or to move from one jurisdiction to another, my client, and it was intense. I had to really uh, marshal all of my best arguments because um, there's a lot of discretion and discretion at, um, at that level that I wouldn't probably be able to easily appeal or move up the, um, the decision-making ladder. And so um, that is something that I found very useful, but whether you're actually in a clinic or you're having some sort of other hands-on experience, I think that that's, that's the first step toward um, wanting to be any sort of clinical professor. But even listening to this podcast is a good first step because you need to be aware of what's out there. I really didn't know a lot about what clinical law professors did that, that came much later for me. So I feel that I missed out. I just thought that professors were folks who really loved law school, did great on exams, and were willing to uh, spend a lot of time not just teaching, but publishing and thinking. And I didn't have the best sort of ivory tower experience. While I, I did serve on the law review, um, and I did, you know, write an article for publication, that felt too removed from the real world for me. It didn't feel very hands-on. And so the thing I'd recommend is that you um, talk to clinical law professors, see what they do day to day. And let me offer you just a, a very small sort of window in so you can start those conversations. In my role, I wear three hats. I am a teacher. So we have a seminar or classroom component. I'm also a litigator and supervising students. I try to lead from behind by teaching students through giving them the first chair role in our litigation. And uh, I have to laugh at myself because I have become someone who has catchphrases already for <laughs> how little I've, I've uh, been teaching still. Things like, 
there's no such thing as good writing, only good rewriting, right? Because I say that so often. Um, so I spent a lot of time in that role as a supervisor, helping people to improve their writing, like their briefs. And then the last role is, or last hat I wear is academic scholar or thought leader. So I'm generating and responding to ideas in particular about fair housing and segregation in our neighborhoods based on race. So in clinical teaching, if you are concerned about this, there is less pressure to publish, but some schools still, still expect you to, um, to publish in the sort of academic scholarship realm. So those are a few starting points, but definitely talk to existing um, clinical professors and please don't hesitate to reach out to me because I have lots of thoughts on what sort of personalities particularly enjoy this work. I'm, I'm liking your catchphrases already, I'll have to say. I'm a big believer in editing is almost more important than the initial drafting of, in any legal writing. So Heather, you've shared with us the different hats you're wearing. You've transitioned now into talking about how you're directing the Civil Rights and Transparency Clinic at SUNY Buffalo. Would you say that what it means to be a clinical professor can look different at different schools? Thanks for that question. Uh, that's right. But I will say this, first, clinical education is, is really quite new. We're in our arguably second or third generation. It was really uh, in the 19, late 1960s, 1970s that they started with a particular orientation toward actual um, service, helping the legal services organizations that were just burgeoning at the time to develop into um, strong organizations by having law student support. It has only become a pedagogy through, I think, a lot of intentionality, a lot of um, study of how do we teach students well through hands-on experience. And so it's still evolving. And every school is in a different place, and they have different rules and the rights, voting rights or security for their professors. So you have to kind of know what fits for you. Thank you, Heather. That's some, that's some really great insight. So turning a little bit more to intentionality in our career planning. Um, and this is something you've, I, you and I have discussed previously, but what really does intentionality in, in planning a meaningful public interest career look like for you? Or perhaps another way to phrase this is, how does a current student or recent graduate go from point A to point B to find the career they're looking for? Mm, great question. With respect to really going from point A to point B in the career, I think that there are some really practical things that we can do. And I, I want to reiterate, because we're dynamic people, because it's easier to be an ostrich and head in the sand and think, I will do that, um, that cover letter later. I will think more about my career later. Right now I need to study for this or I need to um, participate in this. It, it's so easy to put off. So I think that my very practical advice is to don't put it off anymore, to think. And um, to think about what your next few steps are so that you can continue to develop toward that, that dream job that you want. Uh, we'll, call it, we'll call it dream job. Um, that public interest position that you might want. So I've already talked about transferable skills because I think we have to admit that you have to start somewhere and you're unlikely to land that perfect job immediately after graduation. So where do you get those transferable skills if it's not exactly your dream job? So I think this is a great starting point. 
you ask yourself those questions we were talking about earlier with respect to informational interviews, like what are the primary skills that the lawyers are using in the field that interests me? And then sometimes you need to look at it for it in different contexts. So for example, if you wanna do international human rights, but maybe you don't have that one job yet, but you wanna break in, you can look domestically for the same set of skills. You can look to see what organizations or what networks exist that are doing the nature of the work, even if it's not international, or um, maybe you know that the primary thing is negotiations or good brief writing, and you're gonna look to those skills and try to do those domestically while networking to meet the people who are at the organizations who might hire you because in three to five years from now, you'll be what they need. And so you stay in touch. So literally thinking about transferable skills and talking to the people who are doing them to build your network. So if you don't know what your dream job is, or what skills you need, that is perfectly okay and very common. Um, you wanna just look for lawyers who do what you might wanna do and ask them, what are you doing day after day? Uh, and not, not to be dramatic, <laughs> but these conversations might save you years of toil. In my opinion, um, you really need to have them and have them with different people who have different opinions. Heather, I think um, it aligns with a concept I, I think of that students should be implementing as students so they can develop the skill and carry it without carry it with them throughout their career, which is being a reflective practitioner. So when you're talking about do your homework, talk with different attorneys, uh, write that cover letter, you know, do do the work. Um, I think of that as playing into this being a reflective practitioner. And with that, being very intentional about evaluating the experiences you have had. Why did you like the work? Why didn't you like the work? Was it the work? Was it the workplace culture? Was it the supervisor? And trying to really pin down why you have good or bad feelings about different experiences and being very intentional on in how we evaluate what we've done, whether it's courses we've taken in law school, field placements, summer positions, um, our first job out of law school, and using that to supplement the conversations you're having with attorneys about their work, the other ways you're plugging into the legal community by attending CLEs and other networking events to really help you develop a picture that's individual to you. Um, so I don't, I don't know how you feel about the reflective practitioner angle, um, but it's one I think can be really helpful, especially when you, when you are a little lost and what feels right for you, where you should be headed. I could not agree more. And I feel like you are reading my mind. Um, reflective practitioners, reflective practice, that's really at the backbone of so much of what I try to do pedagogically and in career advising students in our clinic. So um, I would add a couple things to that. Um, I think a lot of people worry about um, about not getting noticed, right, in a pile. I've, I've talked about that with the, with respect to clerkships or maybe not having stellar grades. So not being that one student who academically um, is going to get the job based on what they look like on paper. So in addition to just being intentional about how you approach and who you approach about um, developing those transferable skills, I would say, you want to stand out in some way. Believe it or not, everyone not everyone cares about grades. Um, and I recently talked to a colleague who leads a career services office who reminded me um, that there are some character, um, some temperament and, and character 
qualities that in particular nonprofits are looking for. Because I think at the end of the day, your why, why do you want this job? Why you at this organization tends to be more important for public interest jobs. So you can show things about yourself and stand out in really positive ways by emphasizing your, for example, resourcefulness, your empathy, persistence, professionalism, you know, your all around temperament. And you use these things, um, think of strategies that you can use to demonstrate these through your application materials, um, what you say during interviews or what your recommenders say on your behalf. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask your recommenders, your trusted professors or colleagues or clinical professors um, or field placement supervisors to say certain things on your behalf to emphasize aspects of you. So you might also, and this is really important and related to what you're saying, Anne, Think of non-legal jobs that show these qualities too. Sometimes they stand out best. For example, did you ever work as a customer service rep and you dealt with really zany requests from customers? This might be a great illustration, for example, of how you can handle the chaos of family court if that's what you want to do. So try to stand out as memorable as an individual. Um, sometimes even a line on your resume, like an interests line, can stand out. One of my colleagues for years has put uh, tries to golf on her resume, which gets her a lot of laughs. And um, I also myself refer to my favorite artist on a resume, which does often attract a lot of attention as well. So those are a few thoughts about um, being intentional, about trying to stand out for something other than the, the classic academic standards that um, some people go by. Heather, I think we need to know who's your favorite artist. Kahin Daiwali, absolutely. Um, so he has now, of course, become very famous as a painter for doing President Obama's portrait at the Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. And I have to say that I am a trained docent for the National Portrait Gallery as a volunteer, which is like a year-long training, the Navy SEALs of, of portrait or of, of docent training, if you will. Um, and I had the chance to many times tell people about Kahinde Wiley's work. In particular, if you get a second, go Google his amazing portrait, huge life-size portrait of LL Cool J. Ladies love Cool James, one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I really love that. that that's fantastic. Um, going back to some of the great advice you gave students here just, just a minute ago before I got a sidelined on the art world. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. So I'll add when we hear feedback from a public interest employers in particular, they want to know from students why public interest, why this specific public interest job. Those are very common interview questions. Um, and I'll also say for students, you know this, the Career Center has many, many resources to help you prepare your applications and to really tailor them to public interest positions in particular. You can also always schedule a mock interview with your career counselor to practice those questions and to practice telling your story. So I think one thing that I just wanna extra highlight that Heather said is, we're all bringing something to the table, right? You do not have to be the top of your class with your law review note published to be a valuable, you know, successful future public interest lawyer. You are bringing unique skills, a unique experience, a unique background to whatever job you're applying to, and that is great. And so it's all about uh, 
telling your story and fitting it into the specific employer that you're applying to and helping them make the connections of how all those great things you've already done will really help you succeed in working for that specific employer. I know you have a favorite law career book. Um, and if that doesn't show Heather's dedication to intentionality in her professional development, I don't know what does when you have a favorite law career book, but I know Heather does have one. So can you tell us about it and why you recommend it for public interest students in particular? Absolutely. So Anne, you just said the, what's your story, right? How do you connect to that public interest employer? And I think a lot of people have a hard time narrowing in on what is their story. So I'm really geeked about a book. I really am because it actually helped me. Literally, it helped me as I read through it. And I think it helps a lot of students and unhappy lawyers who are looking for ways to find happiness in the law. So it's called the new what can you do with a law degree. The version I have is a 2012 edition by Larry Richard and Tanya Hansen. Now it's organized around some really probative questions. So this is my first favorite part about it. Like chapter six is, does your job fit your values? And chapter seven is, does your job fit your psychological needs? And so those I think are really probative and help you to know, to, to just know yourself. And then second, my absolute favorite part is the back has a card sorting exercise that I think everyone should try. Each card describes some element of a legal job, and then you sort the cards quickly into piles based on whether it's important to you or not. For example, um, one is competition, which is engage in activities that pit my abilities against others. For me, that went in the never valued pile, personally. I think there's plenty of competition in the law already. And then another one is uh, time freedom, have the responsibility to work according to my schedule or my hours or needs. That one is a pretty important one for me. So it goes in the valued or always valued column. And so as I started to sort these, what really stood out to me were the never valueds and the always valueds. So the more I went through that book, the more I understood what I was looking for and could really nail an interviewer's question with respect to what is my story. I'll just say, um, I love how you utilize that book. So when I think of some of the more um, other law career professional development books, they get a lot at the reflective practitioner, right? Evaluating your priorities, evaluating your interests, which this book does well. But I think something that you're doing so well, Heather, with this book is you're taking it a step further and using it as preparation for your application materials and for your interviews, um, which is just gonna make a better use of your time, right? You're getting more bang for your buck when you're sitting down and thinking critically of not only what your priorities are, but then the next step. How do I tell this story again um, now that I know this is a priority in my application materials, in my interviews, those sorts of things. So I think that's just really important to highlight of, of that it's a great book, but also how you utilize the book. Absolutely, Anne. I appreciate you saying that. That's a great example. Well, I'm going to bring us full circle, Heather. You shared that your decision to attend law school was not one of the most examined decisions of your life, but now a number of years into practice, you've really focused on intentionality. What I want to know, and I'm hoping for some reassurance here for our students that maybe are in a similar place of how they ended up in law school, was it the right decision? Do you, was this a good happenstance that you, you went to Minnesota law? Absolutely. Um, I 
my smile hasn't been bigger this entire interview than it is right now because truly I am exceptionally blessed to be in a position where I, I get to touch lives in um, as a trusted advisor and give people information when it is so critically needed. I get to advocate and use some of my, my best qualities and skills and organize. And so, and I get to do that in a way that teaches and empowers other people to potentially pursue public interest careers too. So I have certainly found a position that takes advantage of those. And what I think I was searching for most in the last two years is the right place to do it. So I talked about the book and the sorting exercise and community and location are a pretty important one for me. So Buffalo, when I interviewed here, quickly uh, called out. It really um, was a magnetic pull. And so I feel like I'm in a place that has a lot of room for me to uh, to continue to touch lives and to to be of use. And I think that that is a, is a, is a clear win for me. I absolutely belong here. That's fantastic to hear. And I, for one, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to follow your career because I'm excited to see what's, what's on the horizon, Heather. Um, you've done so many impressive things already. Um, with that, I'll, I'll thank you for your time. This was incredibly interesting and informative. And to all our listeners, we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. And please, just anyone who's listening, if you want to talk about public interest careers, clerkships, fellowships with Equal Justice Works, Skadden, or some of the many other great fellowships or clinical teaching, don't hesitate to reach out. I'd be more than thrilled to talk to you. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.